Okay, uh, please turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians. Uh, if perhaps it's your first time here, we've been uh, in a series in Colossians for several months, but we've not been there for a few weeks. We had uh, something different on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Pete gave us a special message last week on deacons. And so uh, now this morning we're returning to Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 16 to 23. So verse 16 through to the end of the chapter And the title that I've given this morning's message is Hold On To Your Freedom. Hold on to your freedom. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, as we begin to look at this passage together this morning, I want to start with a video. We don't do this very often, um, but I think you'll recognize it. Hopefully you'll enjoy it, and I'll come back up afterwards and tell you how it all ties in. I am William Wallace, and I see... A whole army of my countrymen, here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. 
I share that clip this morning because I think it captures something of the spirit of the passage that we're looking at today. This morning's passage is really just one big call to hold on to our freedom, to hold on to our Christian freedom to fight tooth and nail, not to be taken captive or led away from it, to not be thrown into doubt about the freedom and the fullness that we have already received in Jesus. Fullness in Christ has, has of course, already been this running theme throughout chapter 2. Already we have seen Paul raining down blows on some of the theological errors about spiritual fullness that some had been suggesting and promoting to the Colossians. He's already addressed the dangers of being taken captive by empty human philosophies, having our minds duped and deceived by plausible arguments that in reality rob us of the fullness that is ours in Christ. But here now this morning, he also wants his readers to know that those theological errors about fullness, those intellectual errors, also have practical counterparts. That false teaching and theological error affect not just what we believe, but what we do. They affect how we behave and the lifestyles we pursue. And so here in verses 16 to 23, Paul sets out to identify the three most common paths of practical Christian error, to show them up for the sham that they really are, and to remind his readers once again that all spiritual fullness, all freedom and forgiveness is already theirs in Christ. We don't need lifestyle additions to Christ that are in fact devastating distractions from Christ. We don't need to feel spiritually intimidated, Paul wants us to know, by those who tell us otherwise. Nor should we be tempted to veer off down their enslaving enslaving paths. We simply need to keep walking along the freedom road, the, the road of fullness in Christ. So the three dangers, the three errors that Paul addresses here are as follows. We're going to look at the errors of legalism, the errors of the error of mysticism and the error of asceticism. Now, please don't worry if you don't understand half of those terms. We will we'll get to them each in turn. But legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. The first warning that Paul gives here is about legalism. He, he wants the Colossians, he wants them to know, don't be judged by legalists. So that's our first heading this morning. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now the warning here seems to be especially against those who are calling the Colossian Christians to observe Old Testament rules about restricted food and uh, religious days, and who were using those rules about diets and days as criteria to judge the Colossians. Criteria to judge how spiritual the Colossian Christians really were. It seems some were suggesting that if, the, if, if you aren't observing and keeping and practicing these particular re- religious observances, then your spirituality is suspect. Uh, it, it's second rate. It's questionable. Listen, they say, if you really want fullness as a Christian, if you really want to advance spiritually, you need to observe these particular religious practices. Don't eat certain kinds of food. Do observe special religious days. 
And the problem is it can all sound very impressive and it can all sound very devoted, like going the extra mile to please God until you realize what such people are really saying. What they're really saying is it's actually not enough to just have Christ. You also need to do these other things in order to enter into true Christian fullness. Now, of course, it's true that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God did set out these things as important markers for his Old Testament people. These uh, observance of days and observance of dietary practices. But they were clearly given as temporary things, temporary practices, temporary markers until Christ came. But in the coming of Christ, all of those old rules and observances were once and for all fulfilled in him. Which is why Paul says, look at verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These these old external religious restrictions were were a bit like signposts along the roadside uh, to get you to your ultimate destination. So think about the last time you went on a long journey, and uh, you have to imagine perhaps you didn't have sat-nav as well. Think back to the old days. You're on a drive, you're trying to get somewhere, and, and at that time, road signs are really helpful. But once you get to your anticipated destination, you don't, you don't hop back in the car and say, do you know what, rather than enjoying being at my destination, I'm just going to go head back and observe and admire those road signs. They were wonderful road signs, weren't they? How, how, how sort of fancy they looked and how impressive they were. No, we don't need the road signs and the pointers anymore when we've got what we're ultimately looking for, when we've got Christ. The shadows have been done away with now that Christ, the fulfillment, has come. Or to put it another way, um, shadows are sometimes helpful for letting us know that a friend is waiting for us around the corner. Their shadow can get us excited that our friend is approaching. But once the friend rounds the corner and you see them face to face, you don't go back to looking down and enjoying their shadow again. I hope we don't. That would be weird. You don't give their shadow a hug. You don't enter into an extended conversation with their shadow. That would just be bizarre, and it would be a terrible exchange. Or imagine if you're married having a relationship with your husband or wife's shadow rather than with your spouse themselves. What a loss that would be. And what a loss it is, Paul is saying, to have been given Christ the substance and fulfillment of all those Old Testament shadows. And then to say, hey, let's, let's just spend some more time in the shadows again. Not when in the kindness of God we have been given Christ in all of his fullness. It's Jesus we want, not mere shadows. And so Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you concerning these things. Don't be taken captive by legalism. Measuring your own or someone else's spirituality by their ability to keep Old Testament ceremonial laws or maybe keep modern man-made rules. Don't hanker after outward religiosity when it's really just a poor substitute for Jesus himself. And don't let anyone condemn you for not following their rules. Ignore them, says Paul. Don't let them lead you back into the shadows. Hold to Christ and all of that fullness that is already yours in him. As he says in Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore 
and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Legalism leads us away from our freedom in Christ. It also leads to uh, judgmentalism and joylessness. So don't buy into it. Now, none of this is to say that Paul wasn't committed to making wise choices in the Christian life. It's not to say he wasn't committed to exercising self-discipline and setting personal boundaries in order to obey God's actual commands. He talks elsewhere about mastering our bodies and our appetites and employing our time wisely in the service of Christ. He also really respected personal scruples, the personal scruples and decisions of other believers who perhaps did choose for themselves to abstain from certain foods or drinks or things like that. We have great freedom as Christians in what we choose to do or not to do. We can keep days and diets if we want, and equally we can ignore them. But what Paul is vehemently opposed to here is any suggestion that observing such things would in themselves lead us into a greater fullness than that which we already have in Christ. Or that they would somehow make us superior to other Christians who don't practice those things. Perhaps you always, perhaps you always do a quiet time in the morning. Perhaps you've made a personal decision not to eat meat or drink alcohol. Perhaps you like to observe Lent or fast once a month or take a day or two each year to get somewhere in sort of solitude and on your own. If you've chosen to do those things in order to personally honour God and better keep your eyes on Jesus, then God is honoured by those choices and decisions. But you and I have no warrant to suggest that those personal practices should be essential practices for every other Christian. We are not to judge other believers in these things, and we're not, allow, we're not to allow ourselves to be judged either. All our security as Christians, all of our freedom, all of our fullness, doesn't depend on what we do for God or what we abstain from for God. Our freedom and fullness depends wholly on what God in Christ has done for us. In Christ, we have all that we need to know God, and to walk in loving obedience to him. So don't be judged by legalists. That's the first warning that we see in our passage today. Second, the second warning we find is the warning not to be disqualified by mystics. Here Paul addresses the error of mysticism. Our second heading today. Mysticism, don't be disqualified by mystics. Uh, this is verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So, so here what Paul's doing is he's turning our attention now, not to those who look down on us because we don't follow their rules, but to those who might look down on us because we don't share their spiritual experiences. He warns the Colossians of those who insist on asceticism, and we'll come more to that in our third heading this morning, but also he warns them about those who insist on the worship of angels. Now, got to be honest, it's not 100% clear what Paul means here. I guess the Colossians would have known, because some of them had been doing it or someone had been suggesting it to them. It might be that some were actually advocating worshipping the angels alongside Christ. That's possible. I think it's more likely, though, that what was happening was some people were claiming to worship alongside the angels, almost transported up into the heavenly realm and experiencing these very mystical and otherworldly times of worship. 
Hence why they, he says they keep going on in details about the visions that they were supposedly having. So essentially, I think they were claiming to have a, some kind of superior form of intimacy and devotion to God in their times of worship, to having fuller and more heightened worship experiences compared to other Christians around them. And then they were claiming that those who didn't share those experiences were falling short. Or again, missing out on something vital to being a truly full and complete Christian. They were insisting that all the other Christians should join with them in pursuing these mystical encounters. And they obviously thought very highly of themselves and, uh, and their experiences, which is why Paul's critique of them is all the more scathing. You see, they thought they were the spiritual ones, the mature ones, but in reality, Paul says, they're puffed up without reason. The only fullness they demonstrate is being full of themselves and full of pride. And all of their proud pseudo-spiritual talk is just evidence, he says, of worldly, carnal, sensuous minds. One commentator, Max Anders, writes, This quest for super-spiritual experience, like the legalism of the previous verses, fosters pride. The experience seeker, the experience seeker delights in false humility, but his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Believers may have spiritual experiences of varying kinds. Experiences themselves are not evil, but when we try to make our experience the standard for all believers, or when we measure our own or someone else's spirituality on the basis of that experience, we're being arrogant and unspiritual. Christ is central, not rules, not experiences, Christ. And that really is the nub of the matter here. Christ. Because at the root of their sort of pseudo-spirituality, Paul says, is a failure, verse 19, to hold fast to Christ the head. See, these, these, these people, whoever they were, were going on in great detail about the visions they were having, going into great detail about their worship, rather than talking about Christ himself. They were seeking spiritual nourishment in these mystical subjective events rather than in Christ himself, from whom, Paul says, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So this kind of thrill-seeking spirituality can be a dangerous distraction from Christ, actually cutting us off and diverting us from seeking true growth in him. And their foolish talk was actually working to unsettle the security of other believers as well, which is something that God takes with the utmost seriousness. If you remember Jesus' words in Luke 17, verse 2, he said it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So certainly those who are insisting on these things ought to think twice, lest they lead others astray and face the judgment of God. But here Paul's far greater concern is just that the rest of the Colossians don't allow themselves to be disqualified by such people and by the experiences they claim to have had. Uh, this word disqualify is kind of, um, it's umpire language. It speaks of an umpire's decision. But in this case, it's not actually the real umpire, God, who's trying to disqualify us. He's the one who's done everything necessary to qualify every believer perfectly and completely. 
But in this case, it's the puffed up, unauthorised boasters who are trying to disqualify us. Perhaps picture it like this. Imagine, imagine you're running a long-distance race, and uh, it's not easy. It's certainly not easy if I run anywhere. Uh, but we're in a race, and you're moving in the right direction. Then all of a sudden, another runner comes alongside you. Or maybe they're not even a runner. They're just an onlooker from the sidelines, someone who's not in the race. But they come alongside you, and they say, hey, wait a minute. You're not wearing the right shoes. You're not running fast enough to compete. You're not pumping your arms up and down with quite the right rhythm. You're not getting the right thrill of excitement from running. Now, there's no way that this person can go and convince the race organizers to disqualify you because these troublemakers are just making up these requirements in their own heads. They're just puffed up without reason. But where the great danger lies would be in convincing you that you're disqualified when you're not. They can make you feel disqualified and unfit to be there. They could demoralize you in the race. They could slow you down or distract you as you run. They could rob you of your joy in running. And perhaps they might even tempt you to veer off down a completely different path to try and find the, the, the running experience that they're talking about. Perhaps they even lead you to drop out of the race because you no longer think you're fit to be there. And that's what Paul means here when he says, let no one disqualify you. Not that they could disqualify you before God, but they could make you feel disqualified or even lead you to disqualify yourself by leading you away from Christ. At the very least, buying into this kind of uh, over-the-top experientialism, disconnected from Christ and his word, it will, it will at the very least rob us of our joy and it will rob us of our confidence. It will distract us from a close relationship with Jesus and it will stunt us in our spiritual growth. True Christian growth only ever comes from holding on to Christ in all of his fullness. Now, I want to say at this point just a little bit about my own journey in these things. I don't really like to do this, but I think it might be helpful just to illustrate well, two things, the importance of genuine Christian experience, but also the, the, the dangers of an unhealthy desire for experiences that are detached from Christ and detached from his word. So uh, I'm going to take you back a little way in time. I won't say how long, but during my student days, uh, God, in his kindness, led me from arriving at university with a really quite superficial and trivial and half-hearted view of Christ and of his word to a steadily deepening passion throughout my university years to know Christ and the riches of his gospel better. Uh, a growing passion to, to pray and to dive deeper into his word, to uh, embrace richer, deeper theology, uh, to grow in a love for the writings of Christians of old. Uh, I wrote them down, Calvin and Luther, Edwards and Owen, Ryle and Spurgeon, Piper and Lloyd-Jones. And it was that deep dive into God's word and a growing desire to know and follow Christ that made me hungry for a richer experience in my Christian life as well. And, and sort of along with that, part and parcel of that was the conviction grew in me that my functional cessationism wasn't in keeping with what I saw described and prescribed in the pages of the New Testament. If I wanted to live as fully as possible under the authority of God's word, I realized I needed to grow in being a, a heartfelt worshipper. 
I needed to grow in deepening in my affections for Christ and his people. And I needed to become open to desiring and praying for a wider array of spiritual gifts than I'd been willing before to recognize. So I'd become a convinced biblical continuationist. And if you don't know what that means, come talk to me afterwards. Uh, And I have been ever since. It was both an exciting and a daunting realization for me at the time to realize there is no biblical warrant, at least in my mind, to believe that certain New Testament spiritual gifts have ceased. And that alongside these gifts, there's also a much broader call throughout the whole Bible for the Christian faith to not just be about the mind, but also about the heart and the affections as well. Christianity is an experiential thing. Something someone once described as, it's something that should be known and felt. That is biblical Christianity, something that should be known and felt. And I'm so grateful, this is not about me, I'm so grateful for to God for the way he opened my eyes through his word to see and pursue these things in a deeper way. And they're still, by the grace of God, very much my passion and my desire today. I know they are for so many of you as well. But it was also at that time that just for a little while, I took a deep dive into into some excessive experientialism as well. into some wacky charismania, although don't, don't take offense at that term, but I think it's kind of partly what it was. It, it didn't last long for me, but it took me a few months to find my feet. And one of the things that sucked me in and almost led me off down a different path was the claim that every spirit-filled Christian should speak in tongues. The claim that if you didn't have the gift of tongues, you were somehow spiritually deficient a second-class believer, that there was something essential missing in your Christian experience and in God's impartation of the Spirit to us. And I I felt, honestly, uh, I felt second-class. I felt somewhat disqualified. and And I longed to receive this particular gift, the gift of tongues, but not solely at the time just to enrich my walk with God, which I do believe is what tongues, uh, the gift is given for, But I was desiring it because I didn't want to feel like an outsider, but an insider. I didn't want to to be in the lower class of Christians. I wanted to be in the higher class of Christians to not feel inferior to other believers, but maybe even feel superior to some. And so I prayed and I wrestled with it and I read several books that I would not recommend that reinforced the idea that tongues is a gift intended for every spirit-filled Christian. And I bought into it only to finally return to my Bible, should have gone there first, and realize that it simply wasn't so. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, abruptly stopped me in my tracks as I saw there written plain as day, it is not the Holy Spirit's intention that there should be any one gift, including tongues, that every single spirit-filled Christian should have. I saw there that in that chapter, that the Holy Spirit has a far more beautiful and diverse design and intention for his church and for the gifts that he gives to the body than simply making one spiritual gift the kind of essential marker of spirituality and of his presence in a believer. So you see, I think in all my enthusiasm for greater experience, which, which, which there was a lot of good in that, there was a lot that was biblical in that, there was a lot that was the work of God in that, But in all of that, I had taken a wrong turn and moved away from the authority of the Bible on this issue of tongues. I'd lost my hold on Christ the head, at least in this area, 
by not holding on to his clear and authoritative words. Now, I just use that as an illustration. It's one example of the sort of bigger thing we're talking about here. Um, I'm not going to say here and now from the front whether I personally did receive the gift of tongues or not, because I'm not going to do it here, because it has no bearing on how spiritual I am or how full I am of the Holy Spirit. Tongues is merely one spiritual gift among many. And the Spirit loves to distribute gifts to each believer individually as he sees fit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 says that. No one gift or spiritual experience is superior to another and every believer has the same Holy Spirit uniting us to the same Christ in all of his fullness. We have all been filled in him. So, don't let anyone... Well, don't let yourself be disqualified by those who promote mystical encounters or pseudo-spiritual experiences or, perhaps much more innocently, like I was, just simply aren't reading their Bibles carefully enough on the topic of spiritual gifts and who perhaps insist that there's this one special spiritual gift or experience that's the mark and proof of being truly spirit-filled. It just isn't so. Instead, we're simply to hold fast to Christ participate in the whole church, his body, and together, benefiting from one another's spirit-given gifts, we will, Paul says, most certainly grow with a growth that is from God. That's the kind of growth that we want, isn't it? A growth that is from God, and that's how it happens. So don't be judged by legalists. Don't be disqualified by mystics. And finally, and quite briefly, don't be taken captive by ascetics. This is all about the era of asceticism. Not to be confused, by the way, with aesthetics, which has to do with appreciating beauty. I'm not, we're not being warned against that this morning. But asceticism. Don't be taken captive by ascetics. This is verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I said earlier on that the right kind of spiritual discipline, done for the right reasons and freely chosen by us, can do us much good. But an ascetic, as Paul is now addressing here, is someone who's pursuing entirely the wrong kind of personal discipline. It's a person who pursues a life of rigorous self-denial, cutting out all manner of physical pleasures, maybe rejecting things like marriage and sex and friendship and laughter and sleep and warmth and just the enjoyment of, of, physical cre of the physical creation. And even intentionally inflicting pain on their own bodies. Uh, sometimes uh, wearing, as in days of old, wearing itchy clothing, sleeping on hard beds, excessively fasting, or even whipping and beating themselves. All as a means of somehow escaping and transcending their physical existence. And so as a means to bring themselves closer to God's. Sadly, church history is replete with examples of this. Uh, I found these examples uh, as I was reading uh, John MacArthur's commentary this week. He, he writes, according to the church father Athanasius, 
Antony, the founder of Christian monasticism, so monasteries and monks and so on, never changed his vest or washed his feet, which actually seems, I think, like punishment on everyone around him uh, as much as him. But this is the best or the worst. He was outdone, however, by Simeon Stylitus, who spent the last 36 years of his life atop a 50-foot pillar. Simeon mistakenly thought the path to spirituality lay in exposing his body to the elements and withdrawing from the world. Their feats have been emulated by monks throughout church history. Even Martin Luther, before discovering the truth of justification by faith, nearly wrecked his health through asceticism. God may call some to a life of self-denial. Many missionaries, for example, have by necessity led simple, frugal lives. They did not do so, however, as an attempt to gain spirituality. Here's the problem with asceticism. Though it can look very impressive from the outside, very spiritual from the outside, though it can have the appearance of wisdom, says Paul, it actually promotes nothing more than confidence in self. It's all just more human rules and teachings. And that's why you find it in so many man-made religions. It's why you find it in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, and so many others. But Paul says it's just worldly, self-made religion. It's of, particularly, he points out, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, verse 23. Now that, I think, is a damning statement if ever I saw one. He's saying asceticism is worthless. It is rubbish. It doesn't work. All those strict external restrictions have no effect at all on our hearts. Depriving ourselves of food and warmth and company and going to live in a cave somewhere on our own doesn't do anything to subdue our sinful natures. In fact, it often just stirs up our pride and it feeds our fleshly self-reliance. It's another way of trying to master and rule ourselves in our own strength rather than surrendering our lives to God. As the 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren wrote, any asceticism is a great deal more to men's taste than actually abandoning self. They will rather stick hooks in their backs and do the swinging puja. I didn't look up what that means, actually. <laughs> I'm assuming it's not good. Not as fun as it sounds. They'd rather do these things then give up their sins and yield up their wills. There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. And if we're Christians, as Paul knows the Colossians are, we already have Christ, and we have his indwelling spirit within us. We have received Christ in all of his fullness. We have already, verse 20, with Christ, died to the elemental spirits of this world. We, that means we've died to relying on man-made religion and aesthetic, aesthetic restrictions to bring us closer to God. No, God has already brought us close to him. He has drawn us to himself and raised us with Christ. He has cancelled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. And so the underlying call of verses 20 to 23 is don't be taken captive again. To that old way of thinking hold on to your freedom in christ seek the things that are above as we're going to hear next week as we return to colossians seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where real dying to self is found. Not in self-inflicted pain and punishment, but in setting our mind on things above, on Christ with whom we have been raised to new life. Our sins paid in full to enjoy the fullest possible relationship with God in him. So let's conclude. Let me just summarise where we've been. We've seen that spirituality is not a matter of conformity to a list of rules. Spirituality is not a matter of pursuing experience for experience's sake, especially when it's detached from God's word. And spirituality is not a matter of piling on restrictions and prohibitions and pursuing physical discomfort in order to bring ourselves closer to God. True spirituality is simply about holding fast to Christ, in whom we've already been filled and made complete. True spirituality is lived out at the foot of the cross in relationship with our risen saviour Jesus just drinking long and deep from him, trusting him in all things and striving with all of the strength that his spirit supplies and works within us to keep on, remember these verses, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, to keep on walking in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the path of true Christian spirituality, true Christian fullness, true Christian freedom. And it is a freedom worth holding on to, a freedom, in the words of William Wallace, even worth dying for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the freedom and the fullness that is already ours in Christ. That is ours not because we have earned it or worked our way towards it in any way, but because you Lord, in your lavish kindness, have given it to us as a gift, a gift to every single Christian. Lord, please help us to hold on to our freedom and to continually point one another to all of our fullness in Christ. Please help us to hold fast together to Christ our head so that the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Christ, our glorious head. Amen.